To answer is human, to question is divine. Welcome to the world of the Hidden Gateway, an exhilarating podcast exploring the concepts humans have been struggling with since the dawn of existence, such as, who are we? Is there such a thing as good and evil, or are they arbitrary constructs? Does the paranormal exist? How can we evolve to a higher state? Can our mind influence what we term as reality? Providing a transcendental approach combined with hard-nosed humanistic analysis, we invite you on a journey to question your worldview in this theater of life. Join our host, Justin Williams, as he explores the outer realms of faith, the supernatural, human potential, and even our concepts of the universal creator with a fascinating array of guests. This is the unseen world, magical, mysterious, and mystical, where your only limitation is your imagination. This is The Hidden Gateway. Welcome back to the Hidden Gateway Podcast. I am your host, Justin Williams. Now, before we get started with this week's show, I just want to ask if you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe to the show on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This will be a tremendous help for us to reach an even larger audience across all platforms. As always, your support is greatly appreciated, and I thank you all. All right. Well, we have a good one for you today. Our guest is Dr. Charles Morgan. Dr. Morgan is a forensic psychiatrist who has studied post-traumatic stress disorder. He is a researcher with the Neurobiological Studies Unit of the National Center for PTSD. His neurobiological and forensic research has established him as an international expert in PTSD, in eyewitness memory, and in human performance under the conditions of high stress. There's been a lot going on, you know, over the last three years now, starting in 2020, you know, with the pandemic and different things, which has caused a lot of trauma for people, right? People have lost loved ones. People were isolated from their friends and family for periods of time. Thank God that's no longer going on, at least here in the United States. But, uh, you know, it's 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 been you know what a time to be alive, right? It's been something we've we've never experienced before in our lifetime. So my question for you, Dr. Morgan, is how do our brains adapt to traumatic experiences, and uh, what makes some people more resilient than others? A mental disorder that we call post-traumatic stress disorder that has a specific set of symptoms that go with it. So the the short response is most of us experience terrible events in the course of our life, but we tolerate it and we're normal. The, um, but in response to some events, uh, people may develop a constellation of symptoms that carry on more than a month and extend into their life. And those kinds of symptoms are like dreaming about the traumatic event, thinking about the traumatic event, maybe reacting to reminders of it, or become emotionally closed off and distant and avoiding anything that might remind us of the event. And we have different kinds of symptoms like thinking, um, I don't know if I should have survived, feeling guilt for being alive when other people died, 
or becoming angry, irritable, and having uh, sleep disturbances. And if people have those kinds of symptoms in the right numbers, right, the right constellation, then we can make a diagnosis of something called post-traumatic stress disorder. So one of the questions for years has been, why do some people get sick after stress? Um, why don't some people get stress, uh, sick after stress? And the short answer is, there's a number of reasons for it. Uh, there is a genetics component to what makes some of us more vulnerable to stress than others, but it doesn't account for the, the entire reason why um, people might get ill after having a traumatic event. And then there are psychological factors. So we think of our personality styles as how far we go from being Mr. Rogers to Machiavelli, how much we're cool and calm, or maybe like George Costanza on Seinfeld or something like that. And there's a, there's a dimension of personality called neuroticism or emotional reactivity. And the higher people are in that reactivity to things, the more at risk they are for having some problems after being exposed to a traumatic event. Um, and then there are some other factors that we think of as being more cognitive than personality-based that the belief systems that we have can greatly shape our neurohormonal responses to stress. In other words, the meaning that we make of something can influence whether or not we develop a problem after the event. So there's, there's sort of a personal psychological factor, there's a temperament factor, and there's a genetics factor. And then there's another factor, which is um, sometimes what we've been exposed to earlier in life, if we've had exposure to trauma early in life, it can make us more vulnerable to having a harder time to cope with trauma when we experience it later in life. So, for example, I've worked a lot with veterans. The veterans who might have experienced early childhood physical or sexual abuse or neglect may be more vulnerable after they're exposed to combat trauma, to going on and developing post-traumatic stress disorder. But wow. it's not a one-to-one -one ratio. These are factors that influence it, but don't predetermine it in some way. Wow, that's that's interesting. And, you know, I, I was going to ask you about uh, the environmental factors, but from what it sounds like, that kind of ties in as well. So, like, specifically more so, you know, compared to someone that grows up in the inner city versus the suburbs, or even different, different uh, ethnicity groups as well, say black, white, Hispanic, et cetera. Do you, do you see differences there? Yes, actually, I worked in the prison system in the Department of Corrections system here in Connecticut for a number of years in um, an adolescent prison um, for adolescents sentenced under adult sort of rules. And I actually did a project looking at whether or not people had trauma exposure and PTSD. And out of the 700 boys, these are adolescent men, um, largely Hispanic and black, 95% um, of them had seen more than five or six people killed before they were 11. Mm -hmm. But the rates of PTSD were extraordinarily low. Um, so I think, you know, when I study the special operations guys and they see lots of trauma and the rates of PTSD are very, very low, um, it, it helps. It's a helpful reminder that it's like the old adage, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And there are 
There are incredible examples of stress resilience coming from inner city kids who might get in trouble with the law, but they don't have mental illness. Um, and the, you know, and then in military folks who see lots of trauma and who may not get post-traumatic stress disorder. I think the way we think of it these days is that you get ex- when you get exposed to aversive events, it's the people around you and your mindset that help you adapt and cope and uh, respond to that event. And oh. that when you have support from other people and you can frame it and even not blame yourself for it, uh, you survive better. So the it's funny, in, in the neurobiological experiments that we do on non-human animals, like with rats and mice, and we take the rat pups away from their mother and then return them to them, um, the stress, which is very stressful for rat pups, but the stress of being taken away from the rat pup, the rat pups from their mother, isn't what accounts for how they turn out. It's all the licking and grooming that they get when they return to the mom. So wow. the other rat spends a lot of time grooming them and licking them and supporting them. They turn out pretty well. Now, neurobiologically, we think that has a lot to do with a hormone called oxytocin, the hormone of bonding. And it kind of works in the opposite way as some of our stress hormones work. So we think when we extrapolate that to humans, that um, that helps us figure out why people adapt better under stress. Um, a colleague of mine did some studies in Germany looking at people doing a stressful public speech. And he was interested in whether or not this hormone, oxytocin, would protect people against the negative effect of the stress of getting up in front and giving a public speech. The alternative was to sit with a close friend, sit with a stranger, or, or sniff a placebo. So one group sniffed up their nose this drug called oxytocin, and the other one had a placebo. And the other group either sat with a friend a few minutes before they went out on stage or sat with a stranger. The two conditions that lowered the alarm responses, the neurobiology of alarm and stress, were the groups who sniffed oxytocin and the group that sat with a friend. So your social support people you care about can elicit that same protection. So we think that a responding to stress is more related to after the stress happens and the degree of support and bonding um, and reframing of what happened that we can do that accounts for why we turn out better than other people. So people with less support, people who don't have as many friends, they don't have all the advantages of other people, and they might have had some uh, prior history of trauma. They're more vulnerable. Or if they have a prior history of psychiatric illness, they can be more vulnerable after stress to bouncing back and carrying on normally. Very, very interesting. Wow. You, you kind of you answered my question. I had a couple questions for you, but you answered them all in there. Oh, That's very cool. good. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it makes me think like w- when I asked you about the the different, uh, you know, ethnicities as well as, you know, just overall environment, yeah. it makes sense to me. It, it tie- that What you said ties it in because, and, you know, and I don't know the numbers. I'm obviously no expert. But w- when I think of support, I would think that a lot of people, especially young people that grow up in the inner city, 
you know, probably don't have that support, you know, because it's probably a higher percentage of single family homes and the mom is, you know, working eight to 10 hours a day or more. And these kids, they just, you know, they don't, they don't have that support they need. And, and like you said, a a lot of those prisoners, a good percentage of them saw what six or more murders by the age of 11. I mean, you know, so, wow. that's You're absolutely right. Lord, um, socioeconomic status matters in every society, when we look at the, the the group that's in the minority and disadvantaged, we find that stress vulnerability is slightly higher, and there are different kinds of problems when you're not in the majority with all the power and support, right? So in our society, minority groups, whether they're African Americans, whether they're in LGBTQ communities, or people who, are, uh, who don't have as much power as the other groups and as many resources um, are considered more at risk for having um, it's a higher hurdle to try and get through, you know, to, to cope and adapt normally. Um, But I think that one of the things that we learned, certainly I learned and my colleagues who worked with me learned, you know, when we were in our training, we always thought that stress is just bad and it, it harms everyone. And the thing I've learned along the way is that, well, stress is part of life. and But there's a key difference in interpreting stress as it's saying something about you as a person rather than looking at stressful experiences and viewing them as learning opportunities. So some people have bad things that happen and it makes them say negative things about themselves or devalue their, their worth. Whereas other people look at stress and they go, Hmm, I think I've learned something about that. I'm going to bounce back and move on. They don't take a setback as a, as a statement about who they are as an individual. They just see it as an opportunity to move beyond. And that, Hmm. that perspective Um, is significant because the people who view stressful events as some kind of self-statement, that it it says something about who they are as a person and their worth, Mm. they are more negatively affected by stress than people who say to themselves, it isn't my fault the mudslide took out my house, the neighbor's house, or it isn't my fault that I was sexually assaulted um, and I'm moving on. Right. So the way people interpret an event has a great deal to do with how they're going to do in the future. And when I'm working with soldiers and sailors and Marines or when I'm working with civilians, I tell them it's what you make of the experience that's happening to you that will shape um, how things go forward. And you can be in charge of that Uh, very often. I think in my profession in psychiatry, sometimes we're not as helpful as we'd like to be. Um, I think sometimes we give people the message that there must be something wrong with them and we want to support them. Um, And that can get interpreted in a very interesting way. Some people say, well, if the doctor's worried, there really must be something wrong with me. And it can turn into this loop. So the paradox sometimes is that by pathologizing it, we can make people sicker than saying, no, you're going to be fine. Here's the ways of looking forward at what you need to do. 
So the old adage of get back on the horse is really good. You know, we have um, with the military folks I work with, you know, it, it was a real eye opener for me because, you know, as a therapist, sometimes you want to say, oh, well, uh, that was pretty stressful. You might take some time off and don't do too much and, and bounce back. And I was working with active duty guys who were saying, no, you put them back on the plane, you put them back on the horse, you put them back out there. Yeah. And uh, there's even information from World War One. the differences between how the British and the French were responding to um, soldiers at the time who had what we would call now as shell shock type one or two. The Brits moved soldiers back to England to recuperate. The French kept them just within the sound range of the front lines. And the return to duty rates were higher um, in those troops than they were with the Brits. And now, today, we think about it and we say, well, that's because exposure therapy, keep putting people back into a stressful environment is the best way to help them grow and adapt. You, wow. you, you can't learn to be safe when you're relaxed. Wow, makes the sense. Learning and it's, it's kind of counterintuitive, right? We think that um, safety is the unlearning of fear. But in my early experiments, I was actually studying how our brain learns fear and extinguishes fear and how you learn safety. The learning of safety is a new memory that puts a break on the fearful memory. Um, and so you have to be alarmed to learn that you're safe. So sitting quietly in my office talking to you as a patient doesn't necessarily teach you safety. You've got to get back out there in the world and experience the stress and practice overcoming it and tolerating, pushing through it that develops that, that mechanism, that neural mechanism. It's actually not just an idea. It's actually physiology. You're learning to inhibit those fear and alarm centers of the brain to be able to adapt and move forward. So that was something new when I was being trained that I've taught my residents because we all thought, well, you have to, we have to coddle you a little bit and say, oh, don't stress him. And in fact, no, stressing you is a good thing. It makes you hardier. It makes you more resilient. That is interesting. So it's kind of like a in the moment training or quote unquote on the job training while you're going through it, you're learning how to how to adapt and how to make things or life better for yourself. Right. With that support. Right? It's not mm -hmm. in the vacuum, but with support and you know you're supported and you're being pushed back through stress, it's it's actually quite helpful. Uh, I think way back, you know, everybody makes fun of Freud, but he said some things that were pretty interesting when he was asked, why do patients get better? And he says, well, it's because they love their therapist. And at first you can be cynical and you go, I don't know what that is. But when you think about it, when you trust someone you're working with, that's that bonding sort of experience that gives you the courage to put yourself back out there in an anxiety provoking or harmful situation to bounce back and grow. It's kind of what healthy parenting does, right? When we're kids, we right. know we're loved and they push us back out into the world to do things. Um, but that model seems to really account for how and why most people bounce back from stress. Is that they have that social support, that inter interpersonal support, 
or that ability in their head to take that support with them. Uh, you know, you can take your mentors with you in your mind, right? I like you, that. I like that. <laughs> yeah. And you can have a mentor that you've never met. You can read a book about someone you really admire and say, that guy, the way he responded to stress and adapted and cope, I want to be like him. You know, humans were interesting. They're these big spaces in our head. And we have a model. So when you model yourself after someone you read about who's been resilient and hardy and gone through hardship and hardship and hardship, kept, just kept going, that's a mentor in your head. And mm -hmm. it really can make a difference in how people cope and adapt. And we know that from interviews with people who've been like held captive for years and how they coped with capt captivity because um, they had something in their head that they could think of that kept them going and taught them how to adapt. So it's that that neurobiology of attachment that mitigates the negative influence of the neurobiology of fear um, that we all experience when something threatening is happening to us. Wow. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's something else. <laughs> it yeah. really is. It really is. And it's, it's phenomenal what you, what you do, how you help people and, and your colleagues as well. And, um, I would think that uh, along with with meeting with you and, and, and others uh, in, in your field, um, that that does wonders. Now, there's also the drug aspect, too, right, where um, prescriptions are required. Um, don't necessarily want to talk about that. However, I would like to talk about the use of psychedelics. I've seen in the news over the past maybe going on 10 years now that a lot of uh, there have been a lot of clinical studies, a lot of clinicians that are implementing uh, psychedelics for people with PTSD. Yeah, I just got back from San Francisco a couple of weeks ago at the American Psychiatric Association convention. And I went to all the different sessions on psychedelics because I've been tracking uh, a lot of the literature. And it, it apparently by next year, maybe by next summer, we may have FDA approval for the MDMA therapy. People call it ecstasy, right? right. For, for post-traumatic stress. The... Um, the data are really, really strong, showing that even after single doses, when given in a therapeutic context, there can be a very sustained improvement in symptomatology um, over weeks and months, which is really phenomenal. The um, drugs like MDMA or ecstasy got a very bad name because some studies were published years ago, I think they made it on Oprah, that people who had chimpanzees who were given ecstasy have holes in their brain. Mm. It's a myth. The, uh, the scientists retracted the paper because they admitted that the drug they had given to the, the monkeys was not MDMA. It was methamphetamine. So oh, it's like, wow. you know, it's a big difference, right? Big difference. Right. <laughs> and, but in the sort of in the public's imagination, this is supposed to be very dangerous. The psychedelics are actually not dangerous in that way. In fact, that, and there's many different kinds of self psychedelics. I was ignorant about it. I thought, well, there's LSD, there's um, psilocybin, there's MDMA. Um, they must all work. They all work differently. They're in different classes. And um, I think right now what's really interesting is that in each of these different classes of psychedelics, the the data coming from studies of them is pretty robust 
saying something really important is occurring that people are experiencing significant reductions in depression and in symptoms of PTSD for sustained periods of time. Some of them are illegal in the United States. So like um, magnesium abogaine, that's in Mexico. And people I know have gone to Mexico for that therapy. Uh, but one of the physicians presented on his data from the people who go down to this clinic in Mexico. And, you know, I was sitting there in the audience and we're looking at the data and we're looking at how they measured what they measured uh, for symptoms of PTSD. And it was really impressive um, with what they're doing because, I mean, I've treated people with PTSD for years and every new drug that comes out is supposed to work. Like I, some of the early studies in Prozac, the guy who trained me, the professor who trained me, did the early studies in Nardil and Amipramine, yeah. and then came Welbutrin. And we're always saying, wow, the new drug will really work. But in fact, it's about half the people who respond to them and then their high dropout rates. With the psychedelic treatment trials, the dropout rates are maybe 3 to 7%, and the response rates are at least at 70% which we've never seen. Um, some of the new brain scan studies show that these drugs seem to enhance the branching and growth of neurons, but not only the neurons that we think of when we say brain neurons, but the cells that actually support those neurons okay. um, are, are enhanced as well. So I think we are seeing a really important change um, in some of the things that can be used in psychiatry to help people, um, you know, be well. I think that for a very long time, I think DMT, um, LSD, and drugs like that all got a very bad name under the Nixon administration because they were associated with people who were sort of anti-government uh, right. rather than basing it actually on genuine medical data saying these are bad for people. So I'm... I'm actually kind of excited. I think in the next couple of years, some really important medications may be available um, and that people may see some significant improvement because people who have treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress, they suffer. And the medications yes. that we have now, they've been, it's good, but they're far from perfect and they have side effects that people don't like. And, um, I think that's always the trade-off, right? People take a drug and they have to say, well, is it worth the side effects? And do I feel better enough that I can deal with the grogginess or deal with the impotence or I can deal with the weight gain, right? So we always have these wonderful drugs that do horrible things to you in the name of trying to help you. Uh, so I'm really, I'm really optimistic about um, the... Then in the, over the next four years, I think we're going to see some really significant opportunities with uh, the drugs that fall into these classes called psychedelics. Yeah, that's great. I, I certainly hope so. And I'm excited as well. I've met so many veterans that they've told me that they have they have done the mushrooms, the DMT. They've gone into Mexico and Peru to do ayahuasca and different things. And it's it's been a life changer for a total game changer. So if, exactly. if we can get to a point in this country where that is accepted and it, those type of things don't have a stigma attached to them, that'd be phenomenal for a lot of people. And, you know, and it's really a shame. And you brought up the Nixon administration back in the sixties and how um, they, they kind of 
you know, went along with that stigma. It, it, and that's that's politics. And it's really a shame that politics got involved politics uh, with that. And, and so does money. I did a study mm -hmm. way back in 1993. A colleague and I investigated a specific kind of drug that actually enhances low-wave sleep. It makes you sleep. It doesn't just knock you out. You get sleep. All the drugs that are over the counter right now, they simply lower your level of consciousness so they knock you out. But they don't enhance your stage two, three, and four sleep. Mm -hmm. um, this drug did. And when we gave them the data, they put it on the shelf. And I remember I asked them, and they said, we're making enough money right now with all the over-the-counter drugs. There's no need. Oh. This one's more expensive. So it's okay to be cynical and say, you know, <laughs> um, sometimes it's big money that goes, eh, it's not worth a thing. We're making enough money here. But I but I do think I do think it's a good sign that psychedelics are moving forward. And I can only hope that the pro-sleep um drugs will also move forward because that's one of the biggest things people buy for over-the-counter. I don't know if people know this, but over-the-counter medications yeah. to help you sleep are an incredible money revenue stream for the companies that make them. But we don't right now have any drug. If you go talk to your doctor and say, I just want something that enhances my sleep architecture and gives me a healthy night of sleep. Um, we don't have drugs on the market for that. And that's that's a financial call. Uh, that's too bad. That that really is. That yeah. that's horrible because I myself has suffered with poor sleep for as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. And if I could take something that will provide those benefits you mentioned, uh, I I'd jump on it in a heartbeat. That would that would be a life changer for me. Well, I tell you know, you. And, and when you when you're chronically sleep deprived, we wondered about this in post traumatic stress for a long time, right? In veterans with PTSD, if you're not sleeping, and anyone who knows if you've gone days and days and days with one to two hours of sleep or four hours of sleep, broken sleep, you become irritable. Your coping yeah. skills come down. You have concentration problems. You get angry, and um, we were wondering for a very long time, well, how many of the symptoms in post-traumatic stress disorder stem from only sleeping two to four hours a night? Mm -hmm. right? So that's been an active research question for years, which is, are we treating the side effect of a core problem, not sleeping, staying too activated and alarmed, or are we really... Are we really treating separate kinds of problems, concentration, memory, sleep, anger, irritability, guilt, um, and, uh, and, and cued reactivity uh, to reminders of the trauma? We, we actually didn't know. Um, but one hypothesis is that there, many of the symptoms are actually linked to this core problem that people aren't getting sleep. So... Uh, yeah, so I'm 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 eager to see going forward because this the at least the psychedelic um, treatment trials that I saw when I was at the convention they were presenting the data, boy they look good and they do seem to improve all the all the symptoms across the board. So um, yeah, I'm excited about that. I don't know where it's going to go, but but rumor rumor has it right the FDA should give approval for it at least by next summer, not this summer. But that's where the data are right now. 
Now, where is the United States compared to other countries in, in leading or carrying the torch, if you will, with that progression? Are, are they kind of the leader of the pack or is it are kind of mid or is it another country, maybe Canada or somewhere mm-hmm. overseas that has really advanced and yeah. started doing this? You know, with respect to psychedelics, it definitely is not the U.S. Um, it's because <laughs> they've been illegal or um, or not investigated for so many years, and that's why places in Mexico or Canada or in Europe, mm-hmm. and right. South America, people have been able to do trials. I do think in some other domains, the U.S. has taken the lead, but in this particular domain, I think that that's been our Achilles' heel. We sort okay. of we focused more on traditional tricyclic okay. antidepressants and extensions of them and antidepressants that affect the serotonergic system in your brain. Um, but I think due to the government's sort of ban on them, most researchers have said, well, I guess we can't think about that, right? And then we only look in one direction. So I think with respect to that, we've been behind the curve in the United okay. States. I think over the last probably four years, five years, six Let's be generous. Six years, I would say there's pockets in the U.S., like in New Mexico, here in the East Coast and on the West Coast, where studies have been moving forward in like psychedelics and alternative therapies, um, and they're gaining traction. So I think it's a good thing, but I don't think we're leading the way. I think uh, I think we're trying to play catch up. Catch up. Okay. Come on, U.S. Let's do this. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Morgan, I wanted to ask you about drug experiments on U.S. soldiers. Uh, there was a movie that you're probably familiar with called Jacob's Ladder that was released roughly 30 years or so ago. And then there was Operation, if I pronounce this correctly, correctly, Delirium um, at the Edgewood Arsenal, where they use LSD and BS, BZ, <laughs> on soldiers. And... <laughs> um... Yeah, in history, sort of historically, and this is related to some of the psychedelics, I think um, in the 1950s and 60s during the Cold War, it's hard for people who don't remember it to think about it this way. There was a great interest on the part of both the British government, the U.S. government, the Soviet government at the time on whether or not um, drugs could be used to both influence people to do things you wanted them to do or to incapacitate um, the enemy. So in the past, there were some experience about vaporizing um, drugs like Valium, a different form of it. But I don't know if you remember years ago when the, the theater and uh, the Chechens took a Chechen terrorists like took over a theater and um, mm, I do. Yes. the Russians flooded it with a gas that sort of has a variant of a drug related to Valium, but essentially knocks people out right away, sort of a chemical weapon. Um, There were early uh, experiments with the British government, the U.S. government, that were experimenting with LSD and these kinds of things to say, could you incapacitate the enemy, just make them hug trees, wander around aimlessly so they couldn't (laughs) attack people. Um, So there is a long history of the government being very interested in chemicals that influence how people think, how they behave, and how well they can perform. In um, in and and that that goes from the mental realm to the physical realm. So, in the past, the government's 
tried different programs so if they give you steroids are you stronger faster smarter you know as a soldier um and you know excuse my language but you know men like taking testosterone and androgens until they realize their testicles shrink and right. <laughs> you know so um i think that when you if you're interested in the history of medicine and science and the military there's a long history of people asking this question will drugs give an advantage to us over the enemy um but the long and short of it is i think most people don't really feel that it's most people are skeptical enough. They don't really want to take a pill the government tells them to take. I think yeah. pilots did for years to stay awake and fly. Um, okay. But I think as you might've seen in that recent report of the review of BUDS, the basic underwater demolitions um, school out in San Diego where some seals had died. Um, and the review of it was that people were taking drugs just to pass the course. You know, wow. um, I think that, um, in the big picture, um, I think the proper training um, for soldiers and sailors and Marines isn't one that includes drugs. I think that most people realize if you're in a battlefield situation, you may not have these things to depend on. So learning how to work and function and think under stress um, is really important. I think there's some, there's some things that... Um, I think people are doing better now, like they do with the professional sports world, um, is informing people about their nutrition and their workout schedules. And, and there are some supplements that really do help uh, with stress. For example, uh, DHEA, you know, when you're a young man in your 20s, you don't need it. But for every decade later, it's dropping. And yes. DHEA is really helpful to our bodies in many ways. Um, and and for coping with stress, as are uh, omega threes, so the fish oils for our brain. But with the DHEA, you can't take it if you've had melanoma or breast cancer, because uh, it, it can it can sort of increase your risk of those kinds of cancers if you've had them. But I think there's some over the counter nutraceutical uh, information now that we didn't know years ago that we now know should be part of a sort of a regular training um, in, for people who are going to be under stress because it can help. So I think with, between fish oils, DHEA, um, we certainly know those things are beneficial. I think there's many other supplements that they, they just haven't been enough studies to know for sure, so people try them. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but DHEA is definitely one that's highly protective of your brain under stress. DHEA, DHEA is awesome. I actually take that myself. And yeah. I, I remember when I first started taking it, that was that changed my world. That was it's, it's good stuff. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, you, you know, you, you just mentioned sports and, um, you know, I used to be a big sports guy. I, I played sports in high school, but um, I had the opportunity at one time in my life many years ago to be around uh, a lot of different professional athletes in different sports. And I would always hear them talk about being in the zone right where they're on the basketball court or on the football field and everything just slows down and they're able to see things before it happens and they're just in this zone where they're every time they get the ball they're scoring or, or running backs getting 15 yards is yeah. the medical community have they studied that and try to 
um, I guess, isolate that, if you will, to see how people can, you know, uh, get in that stage or, or, or have that experience on demand? A little bit, yes. Um, I mean, in, in my own work, I was really interested in why were special operations Green Berets um, able to perform in different ways under stress compared to Rangers and Marines who are really tough, right? And um, I think that uh, one thing that I found was we started to look at uh, something called neuropeptide Y. It's, it's shaped like a Y. It's made in neurons. It's a peptide. It's, it's released in cells that release high-level uh, neurofine. So in your fear and alarm centers of your brain, when you're under stress, you, you release a lot of neurofine. The cells that release more confer an advantage on the animal or human that, that releases more of it. And in, in my work, we, were, we didn't expect, I mean, it, it was a fluke. We found it by a fluke and then we pursued it. But um, we found that in non-human animals and in humans that release more of this peptide under stress, they're more in the zone, as you put it. They're more focused. The world is clear. They're not disconnecting from it. Um, in psych, we call those uh, symptoms of dissociation, sort of when the world looks distant or through a fish angle lens. It's like when you're watching a horror movie, and it looks like everything rotates and backs up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> NPY seems to confer clarity and focus under high states of adrenaline, and we differ. Um, there's four different, at least four different versions of the gene. And there's one version that says, hey, under stress, I'm going to shut down, not make much. And those people are more at risk for PTSD. There's another version that just says, let's make a whole lot of it. And um, those seem to be the people that we find, in, at least when we study military groups, the people who are advancing in these special operations lanes. Uh, I suspect we'd see it in people in the, we'd probably see the same phenomenon in inner city kids are thriving and doing well under high stress in the inner city, right? Mm-hmm. Whether what they're doing or not is legal or not legal, right? <laughs> thriving, and uh, but but people who have more of more of a capacity to release MPY seem to be more capable under stress of being in that zone of not worrying. In other words, that being in the zone to me from the research I've done seems to be connected to a person actively taking in information from the environment around them and eliminating what's not relevant and then incorporating information along the way, sort of um, kind of solving problems on the fly. Right. Uh, And then the people who are not in the zone are kind of ruminating and they're going back into their head and then coming back out to look at the environment, but not making a useful um, transfer of information from what's in the environment. How can I adapt and respond? Um, so the the way I was measuring it in addition to hormones was looking at your heartbeats or the spaces between your heartbeats called heart rate variability. And in medicine, the the metronomic heartbeat 
has always been associated with heart disease or fetal distress syndrome, things like that. And the paradox when I was studying um, soldiers under immediate stress, like waiting to be dropped into a dive tank or waiting to go into the shoot house or waiting to be interrogated or waiting to do underwater navigation as a combat diver. In all those situations, the people who did the best were the people who had metronomic heartbeats rather than speeding up and slowing down. Now, at baseline, when they're not waiting to play, they have that wonderful speeding up and slowing down that we call that parasympathetic tone. But what I found is that when people are in that zone, they actually perform better um, because they're waiting and they're not thinking to themselves, well, maybe I'm ready, maybe I'm not. Their heart rate's not speeding up, slowing down, speeding up, slowing down, which would give you that accordion effect on the heartbeats. They're steady and they're focused and they're not mentally distracted. Um, and at least one way you get there is is by having this wonderful chemical in your body that your brain makes called neuropeptide Y. Uh, there's probably many other mechanisms that we haven't discovered yet, but that's okay. certainly one that we, we do know is related to being in the zone. So now that neuropeptide Y, is that something that is available to the general public or is it just used for research purposes in medicine? Yeah, right now, yeah, you um, can't really go in and take it. Um, in some experiments, my former boss was doing experiments down on Sinai, having people snort it to try and get it into your brain, which is really, really tough. Um, there might be an easier solution. Although we might not all have um, the gene that says make a lot of me under stress, you, your NPY capacity is related to your aerobic and VO2 max capacity. So by doing aerobic training, you mm. can enhance your own potential for releasing neuropeptide Y. So okay. right now you can't go buy it and take it and snort it and all that. Um, but the good news is you can enhance whatever capacity you've got to release it um, by also enhancing your aerobic capacity because the two get linked um, for that. So, yeah, right now that's where we are. <laughs> <laughs> got it, got it. You know, Dr. Morgan, I wanted to ask you about psychopaths and narcissists. Now, yeah. um, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure you've done quite a bit of study and research on this. Uh, what do you find during your research? How Ooh. do their brains or, or their behavior, well, I shouldn't say behavior is different, but like what, what, do you, what stands out when you, when you research those type of people? So for me, you know, it's funny, most of my research hadn't really been about that. But then during the pandemic, um, the investigation discovery folks called me and said, hey, we're doing a show, Science of a Psychopath. Let's look oh. at all these serial killer cases. Um, prior to that, I had, I had colleagues I knew uh, about it. And I, I, since I do forensic psychiatry, um, some of the people I've evaluated have clearly met the criteria for what we call psychopathy. Um, and I'll, I'll define that in a second. But um, the but my own sort of neurobiological research hadn't been in that. Um, I did recently just finish a study uh, in data over in over twelve hundred people, looking at the normal distribution of psychopathic traits, and and women too can be psychopaths, um, but uh, <laughs> only men. 
But um, so the psychopathy is, if people remember from Psych 101, when we talk about personality, we talk about these five factors. One's conscientiousness, which is like, like the RoboCop factor. You're predictable, reliable. You think ahead, plan ahead. Um, the um, So we think of the, the we have conscientiousness, we have openness, sort of uh, the inventor, tinker, if you like Seinfeld, think Kramer, got lots of unusual mm-hmm. ideas. It's a curiosity, intellectual curiosity. We think of extroversion and introversion. Then we think of agreeableness, how far we go from Mr. Rogers to Machiavelli. And then the last category is neuroticism or, or that emotional reactivity, how far we go from being that airline pilot who says, well, we'll be losing the second engine, but we'll be landing shortly without missing a beat versus breaking <laughs> out of college. But when you think of the agreeableness dimension, Mr. Rogers to Machiavelli, people who are low in agreeableness, um, a subset of those people, those the, the people who are low in that are either narcissists, antisocials, or psychopaths. And the, the psychopath category, um, they seem to be people who don't have the experience of empathy like the rest of us. They really don't see other people any differently than you might this glass in my hand. Um and who view other people as the means for working out whatever's in their head, um, mm-hmm. which is a little different than the antisocial con man who knows you're a person that wants to separate you from your money. Um, in in psychopathy, there's a shallow affect. There's a um, a difficulty in relating to other people, uh, difficulty in having empathy, a need for excitement. And also some recklessness and impulsivity. Um, so they're not all like Dexter on, on the television. <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually pretty weird. The show had many ones that were right. Um, but it was interesting because recently we were thinking about it, looking at the distribution of these traits. Um, and they're distributed in women as in men, but most people, when you say a psychopath, they think a man. Um, mm-hmm. But but women can have those traits as well, and in some ways they fly under the radar uh, for mm. men. Uh, so yeah, because women can play on. You should help me. I'm in distress while they're busy planning your demise. Right, um, right. Yeah, well, my, my research hasn't been on that, but it, but in 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 the show, um, I work with a number of other doctors where we we review these cases, and it's remarkable the similarities the cases of people who have been sort of killers and serial killers and things like that. Um, but neurobiologically, the way we think about psychopathy is that there there is a genetics component to it. We do know that, but it's not all genetics. Um, but there do seem to be a subset of people who just don't have empathy. And, and we think the empathy... Um, factor we think it's really demurring neurons in the brain but we're not for sure but we think that ability to empathize with other people curbs our behavior in some ways because we can feel sorry for other people um, but without empathy um, people can be rather ruthless i think that's why when you look at things during a time of war in the rhetoric you'll see people try to dehumanize other people so you can't care about them so the wow. enemy becomes subhuman or 
um, when we look at internal violence in the country, when people are picking on people either due to race or sexuality or something like that, they dehumanize them. Right. They find terms <clears throat> that make them less than human so that you, I think, don't have to care. And that, that gives you then permission to be mean and cruel to other people if they're no longer people. And so you'll hear them referring to people as being a cancer in society. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hear that a lot. Being a plague. Right. Um, I think, I think that's what that rhetoric um, represents is the psychological move to make you non-human, um, which then gives people, people permission to treat you differently um, and not with equity. Right. So, so we think empathy is a key element in thinking about psychopathy, but um, yeah. That's 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 the extent of what I've done with that. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank you so much, Dr. Morgan. Yeah. This has been an excellent interview. Um, quite the pleasure, I tell you. And I do have one final question for you, sir. Yeah. This is something I ask each and every guest that comes on the Hidden Gateway podcast, and that is to please leave our listeners with, with what I like to call a token of love, something that you think they need to know or learn in this moment as they move forward and continue on their personal journeys. Yeah, absolutely. For me, I would say there's this thing that we call positive reinforcement. It's a phenomenal thing. It means that it's anything that will get us to do something again. Now, this principle works in any animal on the planet. And I say, if you set your goals and you decide, I'd like to become a better person, I want to develop skills, when you are rewarding yourself in different ways, for engaging in the behavior that gets you more for your goal, it will work and it will enhance your capability. So in other words, you set aside a little time every day to take one, one step closer to what you're dreaming of doing, what you're aiming to achieve. Um, and even though, and don't tell yourself, well, I can't do the whole thing now, so it's not worth doing. You just, you do something, just a little thing every day and don't disparage it. Just acknowledge it and say, well, I didn't work out for an hour today, but I did get 20 minutes or mm. I did get five, right? And and using that principle of rewarding yourself for every step in the direction of your goal um, and ignore the other one that goes, yeah, but you didn't do. Forget that. Pay attention to constantly rewarding yourself for the that tiny step in the direction of the goal you've got. And because uh, I, I, I think I, I've worked with so many people I've seen it in myself, it, it's always tempting to to um, denigrate sort of what you didn't, you know, denigrate yourself because you didn't get the biggest goal. And that can discourage people. And if you turn it around, you go, but I did do something right. I got that. I was able to accomplish a little bit. Um, you then you stay motivated and you will keep moving towards your goal. So, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. And that, what you said right there, kind of takes me back to what you said earlier when you talked about the power of the mind. The mind is so powerful, you know, and, and that's what I talk about a lot here on the Hidden Gateway podcast and, and live myself as well in my life, you know, having a positive mindset. I try to eliminate um, all negative thoughts. When those thoughts come, 
you know, I, I speak to them, you know, and, and the same thing with fear as well. Right. Um, fear tries us all. But I think for me, the difference is, oh, go ahead. It's true. And when you think of it, it's all in your mind. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's never, incredible. Never forget that. I was sitting in the, in the, in the prison doctor's office one night and I could hear a CO, a corrections officer, arguing with an inmate. It was an adolescent, right? And he kept mouthing back to the CO. And the CO kept saying, okay, that's one more day in the box. That's two. That's five mm. days in the box, referring to him being in isolation. And he gets up to 28, and then gets to 30, which is the maximum mm. amount of time. Right? He goes, you're going to be in the box for 30 days. And I'll never forget it. When that kid yelled back, he goes, 30 days, all in the mind. And... <laughs> And I remember the guard came back to me and he goes, what's wrong with him? He goes, man, you have no hand. He already just called <laughs> It's all in the mind. He's not worried. And, all the mind. I'll never forget that. And that applies to many things in life. And you realize, wow, I'm, I'm either living too much in the future or too much in the past. And look at the present and go, you know, it's all in your mind. I love that. Living in the now, living in the present. It is so powerful. Absolutely. One word that's thrown a lot, a lot thrown around a lot, uh, probably for the last several years now is manifestation. And people say, you know, to manifest things, you know, it's, you believe it, you, you see it, you believe it, you think it, et cetera, you know, and it's so yeah. true. And, and that is, you know, that's pretty much what I've done with this podcast. I'm going on, what, three years now in December. Yeah. And it's, you know, been incredible for me, this incredible journey. Now, if you would asked me three years, four years ago, would I be doing a podcast? No way. Not this introverted guy who's quiet and doesn't like to talk and has issues communicating. No way. But I, I decided in my mind that I'm going to do it, that I'm going to be disciplined with it and it's going to be good. And it's, and it's happened. So it's been great. It's been so good. Thanks so much for asking me to uh, do this with you. Yes, thank you. This has been great. I know, um, I know I've loved this conversation. I know my audience will as well. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, oh, I want to, uh, one thing, uh, if, if, you know, people want to, you know, get in contact or learn more about you, do you have a website or social media or anything um, like that? I don't have a website, but you have my university email. Yes. Just, you can give them that one and just say, okay. hey, email them and, you know, if it takes them a week to get to you, that might happen, but I will. I'll respond. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you again, Dr. Morgan, for being a guest on the Hidden Gateway Podcast. And to our audience, I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. As always, please remember to stay connected directly with us at thehiddengateway.com. Shoot us email as well, support at thehiddengateway.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. Now, this will conclude this week's episode. Until next time, stay positive, stay questioning. Be love and be free. The Hidden Gateway, out.